Please note, some language used in this episode may not be suitable for younger listeners. Welcome to our bonus episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. In this end of series episode, we set some of our guest speakers from the series the challenge to tell us about a historical figure that intrigued, inspired, or just downright irritated them. These figures don't have to be local and could be pulled from any walk of life. Some of our speakers chose rulers and politicians as the people who stood out in history for them, from Roman reformers to English monarchs. Matthew Hobson, who spoke to us for our episode on Lancaster Delftware Sherds, took us back to ancient Rome to meet a lesser-known politician, Gaius Gracchus. Yes, I've always had a soft spot for Gaius Gracchus and his brother Tiberius Gracchus as well in general because um, they were trying to redistribute land on the Italian peninsula to the poor. And Gaius Gracchus in particular tries to set up this colony for people from the Italian peninsula to go and settle in what is now modern-day Tunisia when they're refounding Carthage. Gaius Gracchus gets the job to go over and try and set up the colony, which fails. So they've destroyed Carthage about 20 years earlier in 146 BC, and then there are allotting plots of land to colonists. But the aristocracy back in Rome, there's a strong opposition to this, and we hear in Appian that Gaius is allotting plots of land to 6,000 colonists, which is more than was passed in the Lex Rubria, the law which was set up to give the colony. There's violence which ensues, political violence in the capital in Rome, and Gaius gets murdered, tragically. But I've always had a soft spot for that idea, you know, of trying to redistribute land and make things more fair. Graham Kemp, who took us through the arresting history behind a key to Lancaster Castle, also chose a politician as his nominated figure. But this time, it was a British Prime Minister. Well, the person I would pick is Robert Peel, who was MP for Bury. He actually donated two pictures to the castle that now are in the Shire Hall of Blackburn and Stanley. He was the founder of the Conservative Party. He was also the Home Secretary who ended all those stupid laws that he could be hanged for, practically anything, and was the most liberal Home Secretary probably before Roy Jenkins in the 1960s. He founded the Conservative Party and became the first Conservative Prime Minister. What makes impresses me so much is he is the only Prime Minister I know of in history that did a U-turn and put country before party. In 1845, he repealed the Corn Laws, which is the heart of the Conservative Party. They were all landowners and they wanted high-priced corn. But with the Irish potato famine, there needed to be an immediate import of cheap American corn to repeal the Corn Laws. This destroyed his party. He and his entire cabinet were sacked from the Conservative Party. But he put nation before party. And I don't think of any other prime minister who's ever had that courage. Two of our speakers turned to kings and queens to find their pick of historical figure to discuss. Andrew White, who told us about the history behind a Prisoner of War Games compendium and the Georgian marine insurance scheme known as the Seaman's Sixpence during the series, told us about Charles II. While by no means a royalist, I'm very much in favour of Charles II. Not everyone's choice, I have to say. He had some irritating and annoying ways and was not universally popular though they did bring him back after the execution of his father. They didn't accept him first time round, but they did accept him later on. And he strikes me as somebody who read very well the uh, attitude of the people and was, in many ways, a very modern person. He was interested in science and was one of the 
if not the founders of, at least one of the supporters of the Royal Society, and had a very wide range of knowledge and a degree of tolerance, I think. My favourite story about him was that when he met George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, the Quakers had a tendency not to take off their hats to anyone. You wouldn't swear an oath and you wouldn't take off your hat. Charles saw that he had his hat still on and he said to George Fox, it's normal in the presence of royalty for one to be without his hat, so he took off his own. And for our fourth historical leader, we went a bit further back in time. Jack Knight, who taught us the rules of well-mannered dining when we discussed an 18th century fork, took us back to the 12th century to introduce us to his pick. I've chosen John of Mordain, a.k.a. John Lackland, a.k.a. King John, who's the only John in the monarchy history, and I've picked him because he signed the Magna Carta, and the Magna Carta is kind of a big deal. He was also itinerant, so he didn't sit on his bum. He moved around the country, but he also turned Liverpool from a fishing village into a, you know, more of a happening place, which eventually led to the Beatles, so you've got to give him credit for that. And Lancaster, where I where I live and work, he gave it a market charter and he invested money in Lancaster Castle as well and had towers built and stuff. So, uh, yeah, good work, John. Several of our speakers looked to a very different sphere to find their figure of choice and chose artists, musicians or entertainers. Anne-Marie Michelle, who joined us for an episode about the painting Near Ray by Hurst Barnford, chose another painter for her historical figure although this time it was a much more revolutionary and shocking one. I'm going to choose the painter Caravaggio, Italian painter, late 16th century, early 17th century. His actual name is Michelangelo Morisi. And I admire him. He's infuriating. And a lot of people hate him. He completely changes our idea of what modern is. One of the things I love about him is that he's now considered an old master, but at the time was absolutely an upstart. People were outraged by what he was doing, disgusted by what he was doing. And that same reaction continued through hundreds of years, completely self-taught. A painter that didn't know enough not to do what he did. He painted directly onto the canvas. He didn't bother with preparatory sketches. He simply brought in models set the scene, lit the scene the way he wanted it to appear, and the way he wanted it to appear was very, very dramatic, spotlit. To my mind, he invented the spotlight. It influenced theater, it influenced cinema. You can look at a Martin Scorsese film and think the man has been looking at Caravaggio paintings. And how many artists can you say that about? Children love him because it's gross. It's, it's you know, there's disgusting details, people's heads being cut off, blood spurting out. But it's also, if you take the time to look, I think one of the most human, not religious, but spiritual painters you'll ever run across because during the time period he was alive, he painted religious subjects. But his religious subjects, he populates them with whores and gamblers and lowlifes, you know, because those are the people he knew. That was his environment. And so he's always got an awareness that the difference between the saint and the sinner is very, very slight. And he's more on the side of the sinner. Our next historical figure worked in a very different medium, comedy film. One of our more local figures, Stan Laurel, was chosen by Bruce Bennett, who talked with us in the series about a 1920s programme from the Cromwell Cinema. Well, I'm going for a local hero, Stan Laurel. 
who was born just across Morecambe Bay in Olverston. I've grown up watching these films. I've loved watching Laurel and Hardy films since I was a child. It's to do with the relationship that's at the centre of them. I find them very funny, but also there's something about the relationship between Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy in these films that is really real, the way that their relationship is structured around fighting, rivalry, resentment, jealousy, as well as sort of deep love and affection and understanding of one another that makes those films stand out from other comedies from the period. The other reason is slightly more academic, which I think is that they're they're very interesting films about how comedy works as well. When you watch a Laurel and Hardy film, you can see the mechanics of comedy at work because they're slow and because they show you in advance what's going to happen. They don't surprise you. They show you exactly how each gag is going to unfold before it unfolds. And so part of the pain and pleasure watching a Laurel and Hardy film is you can see what's coming next. If someone puts a hammer down, you know that's going to land on someone's foot in the next couple of minutes. Or if there's a hat pin on a chair, you know someone's going to sit on it. The fascination is seeing them get to that point, seeing how the story is going to unfold. You know what's going to happen. They're going to fail. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get covered in paint if there's a tin of paint on the side. You know, the pleasure and the inventiveness comes from the way in which they negotiate these narrative routes. Our next two figures both hail from the world of music. In fact, their lives overlapped, both influencing music at a similar time, though they came from different countries and musical roots. To start, Colin Penny, who took us through the life of Roman Emperor Hadrian and the dark history of executions at Lancaster Castle during the series, told us about one of his favourite musicians of all time, Billy Fury. His real name was Ronald Witcherly, but he's much more famously known as Billy Fury. Billy was born in 1940 in Liverpool. As a child, he uh, unfortunately contracted rheumatic fever. He uh, spent a lot of time in hospital and missed a lot of school as a result. It left him with a very weak heart. It wasn't expected that Billy Fury would survive beyond his early 20s. When he left school, he got a job on the Mersey tugboats and he also worked at Liverpool docks for a while. One day in 1958, he went to a a theatre in Birkenhead where rock and roll star Marty Wilde was performing. He'd written some songs and he wanted to see if Marty Wilde would record them. Marty Wilde's manager, Larry Parnes, literally pushed him onto the stage and said, sing. But he did, and he was a, it was a sensation. And Larry Parnes immediately got him a contract, and uh, he became incredibly famous. He was very good-looking. His early act was very much in the same genre as Presley. It was very sexual. He moved around a lot, very provocative on stage, and he was censured a number of times for doing that. But his style changed to become more commercial. He had as many hits in the 1960s as the Beatles did, although the number one spot eluded him. I just want to talk about The Sound of Fury. You cannot overstate the importance of this album. He wrote it all himself, recorded in a day. This album is in the DNA of everything in British popular music that comes afterwards. He um, continued to record, but unfortunately his health did deteriorate once you get to the later 60s, and he had a number of major heart operations and pretty much retired. He was enjoying something of a bit of a comeback in the early 80s, but unfortunately he had a heart attack in uh, 1983 and passed away. 
And completing our group of inspirational artists and creators is Paul Robeson, who was the pick of Valerie Waterhouse, who took us through the life of James Hearns when she appeared on an episode of the main series. I first came across Paul Robeson when I was living in Uganda in East Africa. In the holidays, we would sometimes go to the coast in Kenya, which was a thousand mile drive. We had this rickety old tape recorder in the car. My parents listened to classical music a lot, but they had Paul Robeson. One day I was looking through my parents' LP collection and they had an album called The Glorious Voice of Paul Robeson. And I read the back cover and I discovered that as well as a singer, he was this famous actor, a film star, that he'd been this incredibly outstanding athlete. He'd been a professional American footballer, that he'd been a lawyer and that he'd graduated from his first college, which is Rutgers College, with the highest academic average in the college's history. At the height of the Cold War, the American State Department took away his passport and he was being watched by all the secret services because he was a communist. And my mum loved Paul Robeson because she came from a working class family. Paul Robeson's commitment to standing up for Britain's working people is very, very well known. Um, It's well known that he marched with the Welsh miners and he also gave several concerts for working people in Lancashire. My mum wasn't old enough in 1949 to go and see the Paul Robeson concert at Bellevue Arena in Manchester, but my Auntie Betty, she went and still remembers it as being one of the highlights of her life. And when I told her that I was coming to Lancaster Museums to make this recording of Paul Robeson, she said, I have his autograph. So we went hunting about and we found her old autograph book. And it was just so emotional for me. I actually sort of ran my fingers over Paul Robeson's signature and felt the indentation on the page where his hand had passed. (laughs) My childhood hero. Our final group of historical figures have been chosen because of their efforts to change society, whether through advancing scientific knowledge, attempting to improve conditions for others, or even following their own unique vision of the world. Liz Brewster, who chatted with us about a 1920s Morecambe holiday guide in the podcast, told us why she finds Joan of Arc so fascinating. She was a medieval peasant girl. She lived in a village called Don Remy. And why I think she was fantastic is because she just absolutely went for it. She thought that she had visions from God and that um, God had told her to take a trip to see the king, uh, a place called Chinal, and that she would lead the French army. And she left her life in this tiny little village and she found the king and she told the king, I'm going to lead your army into battle. And she did. And then she raised the siege at Orléans and got the Dauphin at the time to Rheims, where he was crowned, and he became the King of France. And just that story, you know, somebody coming from absolutely nothing, she couldn't read or write, she had no education, but she just had a vision and she went for it, I think is really inspiring. Didn't end well for her, let's be honest. What happened next is that she fell out of favour with the king and the English captured her and they decided that they would burn her at the stake. She didn't recount her beliefs at all. She just kind of stuck by and said, no, no, it was definitely God. I definitely had the vision and, you know, I did what I said I was going to do. And that to me is just, um, I, I find it really interesting because she was just some medieval peasant and you don't get very many medieval peasants leading the French army into battle and getting the king crowned. 
For Peter Wade, who spoke to us about both the Take Me Down to Morgan One Step and a model of an iguana don as envisaged by Richard Owen, it was another man of science who got his vote. I have chosen an astronomer, Sir William Herschel. In 1781, Herschel discovered a new planet, which was the planet Uranus. And by doing that, he doubled the size of the solar system overnight because previously known planets uh, were out to Saturn and Uranus is twice the distance of Saturn from the Sun. But Herschel expanded the universe in other ways as well because he sought out remote objects, clouds of gas, clusters of stars, even galaxies. He also was politically astute. He named the new planet Georgium Sidus after King George III, and it worked because he was appointed king's astronomer. This gave Herschel an income. He could build giant telescopes, the biggest in the world of the day. He was able to investigate parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, particularly the infrared, which nobody knew existed before that. He speculated about life on other worlds, volcanoes going off on the moon, and his sister Caroline was a prolific astronomer as well. She discovered lots and lots of comets, and she was awarded the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society at a time when women weren't even allowed to be members of said society. Chris Donaldson, who took us back to a time of vast forests and giant deer in our episode on the museum set of Irish elk antlers, chose Margaret Fell as his historical hero, due to her religious and political convictions. One of my favourite people from history would be Margaret Fell, who is one of the founding members of the Society of Friends, or as I guess they're more commonly known, the Quakers. Margaret was born in Kirby, Ireland, uh, in the Furness Peninsula, Uh, In 1614, she eventually married a man of high social station uh, named Thomas Fell, who was a judge and also served locally as an MP. After they were married, Margaret moved in with Thomas at a place called Swarthmore Hall, which is near Olverston. And under Margaret's guidance, Swarthmore Hall became one of the most important early meeting houses of the Quaker movement. Religious visionary George Fox paid the Fells a visit at Swarthmore Hall. Margaret was deeply moved by Fox's preaching and his ideas, including his ideas about the spiritual equality of all people. She did eventually later remarry Fox after Thomas's death. Uh, She was highly literate, very intelligent. She advocated that women could and should preach. Fell's ideas became central to the formation of some of the key principles of the Society of Friends, including pacifism. And she actually went so far as to present those ideas in a declaration to Charles II after the Restoration. Margaret ended up enduring hardships, including imprisonment for her beliefs. Uh, So she was actually held at Lancaster Castle for several years during the 1660s. But thanks to her convictions and her work, the Quaker movement grew and spread. And I think that makes Margaret a really important figure, not just in women's history uh, and in Lancastrian history, but also in the history of the wider world. And our final historical figure was chosen by one of our earliest guest speakers, Naomi Parsons, who talked with us about a Victorian child's indenture and about Richard Owen's involvement in cleaning up Lancaster's water supply. For my history uh, hero, I've chosen Elizabeth Fry. Uh, She ties in quite nicely with the two documents I've discussed, the Owen letter and with the Margaret Bird indenture as well. 
So Elizabeth Fry documented the lives of the working classes in huge detail. Um, she was instrumental in reforming welfare and well-being of prisoners, female prisoners in particular, and children. We know she personally visited and supported um, over 12,000 convicts who were being transported to Australia and the colonies. And she, she came to Lancaster in 1818 and she actually found Lancaster generally quite a favourable prison and reported on it in reasonable terms compared to a lot of the, the time. She was a social reformer, she was an anti-slavery campaigner, um, in addition to being a, a prominent Quaker as well. <laughs> 